So we're in Dreaming Again, part two. I hope you can see the funny side of that. Um, and uh, <laughs> we're kind of dreaming again, again. And we're looking at Psalm 126. And it's a quick catch up is the psalm was written in the context of the Jewish return from exile. And they were experiencing restoration after the devastating loss and dislocation of being taken forcibly by the Babylonians uh, to Babylon. And, and there they spent... And the timelines, as it were, we know of the 70 years, but many of them actually spent longer there. Um, well, generationally, as it were. Theologian Tom Wright says of the worldwide COVID lockdown that the church is experiencing something of an exile of its own. Um, we, for example, haven't been able to do worship. We've watched the economic engine shut down. We've watched the land life fallow. We've lived in isolation. Uh, we've been compelled to rest. We need to recognize that this is a new season, a season of being restored, of new beginnings. And the challenge of beginning differently is something of what we have. And, and in this opportunity, and we saw this in verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like people who dreamed. It's an opportunity to dream again. And these are the dreams of hope. What was once denied in doubt, seemingly impossible or inconceivable, is once again possible, once again on the table. And of course, dreaming like this is an act of faith. When you've suffered this loss, something has happened that caused your life as you know it to be disrupted, whether there's been disappointment or outright failure, and you've had to restart something. Or maybe it even seems you've had to restart life itself. And as we looked at some of the issues and some of the challenges, we realized that we often have to confront issues that are not even of our own making, but that have the power to shape our lives. Issues that are not even of our own making, yet have the power to shape our lives and dare to dream again. And so we closed last week just with those thoughts in our minds as we began to look at the tools of forgiving, the gospel tools of forgiving those whose actions took us into exile. It's interesting, this nation, as they begin to remember and think about what they've lost, in one sense, what you've got to realize is that these often were not through your own actions. How do you deal with when your life has been lost through no fault of your own and sometimes clearly through the fault of others, through the actions of others? And we saw last week, we better start by forgiving. And, you know, Israel could have and, uh, and would have been tempted to blame Babylon, but the Lord says, no, the people that you've got to forgive, the people that you've got to process are actually your own forebears, your own forefathers and foremothers. They were the ones whose actions saw you carried into exile. Babylon was literally my tool. But the people you really need to deal with are the people that you hold dear in your memory. And isn't that true? Sometimes the actions that are not our own that we have to deal with in order to dream again are of the people who are closest to us and most dear to us. I think for some of us, may I just say, you know, the tragic and, you know, evil murder of Brendan Horn, the farmer in Senegal this week, 
has thrown up issues where, again, we've got to ask ourselves, this is not just a simple us, them, let's find fault, whatever. When we start really looking at what's going on, we find ourselves having to look at legacies that are generational that have been traveling in that space. And if people are going to find healing, they're going to have to look back before they can look forward. And that's what Israel was facing. And and if you want to really move forward, that's what you are facing too. To dream again means, and we kind of dealt with this last week, we don't spend a lot of time, but it just, it, it, it just struck me so forcibly looking at the narrative playing out in our country. And, you know, just, I'm not going to comment on the appalling behavior of multiple people around that, which is completely opportunistic. And we recognize that's not going to bring healing, that's not going to bring hope. What is? It's when we do the kind of work that the Lord required of Israel. Let's not be blind to the grace that healing and forgiveness can bring. So let's go to our text again, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like people who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues were songs of joy. And it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. So restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So today we pick up at verse 4. Although it's so clear, verse 1, God has begun this massive work of restoration that people have been brought back to Zion. They just recognize Even in the face of what God has done, more is needed. We celebrate and honor what he has done. We appraise him. We sing, shout for joy. We declare it to the world around around us, but we know we still need more. More restoration, deeper freedom, greater works than these. We, We honestly face the fact that we're just not where we need to be. And we refuse just because we haven't fixed everything to become passive or resigned. You know, when you live in an agrarian society and things have gone wrong or challenging, what do you do to start again? And so this, uh, these few verses are going to awaken us to how to participate and how to become part of the answer to the very prayers that your heart is crying out. Lord, you have restored. So restore us, Lord. What is this going to look like? As we asking God for more, as we refuse to be passive, as we refuse to just give in or give up, as we find faith to dream again, season after season, again and again and again. You see, God is not done time after time. So stay hungry for more. And, and you know, you can have climactic moments. Never think that he is done. Never think that he's finished. Never think that he can't do more. And the wonderful picture we first see here is of these wildflowers blooming in the Negev desert. 
So Cindy and I finally, after a decade of living in Pinelands, got out to see the flowers. Um, you know, this year was a really goodie, and uh, so lots of rain but the, in the Western Cape, but the flowers we saw, of course, were in the Northern Cape, because we're just otherwise. So we were in the Tanqua Karoo, where there is absolutely nothing, and lots of it. Um, and, and, and the Tanqua falls between two mountain ranges and receives, receives an average of 70 mils of rain a year. Which, for example, in one of the heaviest storms we had earlier this spring, we received more than that in a day. So that kind of gives you, you know, and that's sort of like the average. A good year gets up to 90. A bad year can be less than 40 millimeters, which is just an ordinary day's rain in uh, Pineland. So this makes it unbelievably arid. It's a desert of rock, stone, and gravel, not like the dunes of the Sahara or the Namib. And, you know, there were just no flowers to be found. Uh, but if you look carefully in the riverbeds, you could find tiny little, tiny little small ones, but they certainly didn't decorate and lay a carpet of flowers. But as we traveled back, we then traveled... Uh, northwest, some remote back roads, and we came up to the southeast of Nivoteville. I know you all know where that is. And as we emerged from, as it were, this deeply, deeply, at one of the driest places on earth, um, and we came towards the towns, we then began to be rewarded by these vistas and landscapes of the flowers. And we just saw, uh, as we approached the, the town, yellows and purples and red and orange, etc. And what, a, you know, an absolute privilege to see the desert bloom after the rains. Now, the Negev in southern Israel makes up about literally more than half of the total landmass of modern Israel, uh, pretty much at the bottom half. And it appears that the area described as the Negev in Scripture was... Uh, the top half of the bottom half. If you go south and then south uh, east, you you come to the Araba, which is pretty much what uh, the Tanqua is. And so there's a, an extraordinary parallel between, as it were, you know, the Araba, where there's almost just nothing. Um, until recently, they started putting greenhouses there, and now it's starting. They, they export vast amounts of food from uh, the Araba, which is the most desolate place, up into Europe and elsewhere. But what we do find is that the area that we would call like Nevoteville is actually corresponds quite nicely to the town of Bathsheba, which is the unofficial capital of the south and of the Negev. So this is not a wasteland. This is an area that you can farm if you know how. But you would have to know the seasons, you'd have to know how to source water, and you'd have to know when to sow and reap. Now, I don't know how many of you know the road from Stellenbosch that kind of goes towards uh, the top end of Makassar or to Kayalitsha. There's a dam when you pass one of the wine estates, and in the middle of the dam is a good old wind pump, you know. There's this, this windmill uh, water pump there. And I always say to Cindy, you know, you just see the top of this thing sticking out and the rest is just water all around it. Like, you know, the size of this rugby field. I say, now that is an overachiever. 
Now, you, you wouldn't get that anywhere in Bathsheba. You don't get that in Nivotville or anything like that. But you really do need to find out where to find the water. You really need to know how you're going to go. And when they begin to say, Lord, restore our fortunes, they're thinking that a season of rain has come. And the streams in the desert, which were, they were not annual rivers, they were perennial. But around that area, suddenly you would see these carpets of flowers. And Israel, just like the Western Cape, actually has this seasonal rains, Mediterranean climate, and these carpets of flowers that make the desert live again. And the streams begin to flow. And when they say, Lord, restore our fortunes, they are dreaming again of something beautiful. They're dreaming again of something life-giving. They're dreaming again of something compelling, something captivating, something attractive. And as we were praying before this morning, part of my heart was just drawn, Lord, as we're out here amongst this dear community, may they see something beautiful. May they see something distinctive. May they see something compelling. May they see in us and in our worship something attractional, desirable, and may they long to for community and for grace. But then he, the, the image moves and he says, so you're going to head out and you're going to begin to sow tears, sow with tears. Why, why would these people who've now been restored to the land sow with tears? Surely it's a joy. Well, the first thing is that sowing after a season of loss is always much harder. You see, the land had had its rest. And if you were to leave land, just imagine leaving land for 70 years. What would that land look like? Would you just be able to walk up and, and just put your seed down? No, sometimes there's a tremendous amount of work that's needed before you can even get to the harvest. And so before you even get to sow your seed after 70 years on the land, you've got, it almost feels like an overwhelming job. And so this re-sowing, you can get discouraged before you even begin because it looks so demanding, pardon the pun. So sowing after a season as long as this, sowing after exile, sowing after disruption, is an act of faith. To dream again. The other thing is that sowing is a sacrifice. These people wouldn't have come back laden with resources. How much, how much food would they have? How much seed would they have to sow? And in some of the lean seasons, farmers would literally have to deny their family their last food so that they can sow into a potential harvest. If they ate their seed to sow, they would have no future. And so sometimes taking the food off the table so that there might be a new year in which there is something, that was something that rural families had to wrestle with. How much, and, and, and that gives you understanding into 2 Corinthians when Paul is saying, chapter 9, now he who gives bread to the eater and seed to the sower. But if you've just come back from exile, where have you got this from? And so sowing means you have to deny yourself any indulgence and maybe even deny yourself your legitimate need. Because to begin again, 
is so demanding out of this context. And so you can understand the, the tears and the heartache of daring to dream again, daring to believe this can work again. But you see, sowing, I believe, thirdly brought tears because it was a reminder of how much they'd lost. You see, these were once functional towns. These were once functional farming communities. These were once places where, where you know, communities thrived and families bore generation after generation. And it was a delight. And now you come into this and you see this wasteland and you see all that is needed. And you know how much work it's going to do and you know how much sacrifice it's going to take. And then you think of why it costs you so much. You see, when things are broken and the land has been lying fallow or barren, there's a sense in which restoration is essential, and that's their prayer. Restore us, Lord. But if you're honest, there's also a sense in which it just feels so needless, unnecessary. And you could just take offense and give up on the hard work of seeing restoration. You know, we've seen stuff happen in our country that seems needless and unnecessary. And the church must not give up on the hard work of still sowing for restoration. It's so easy to blame those who've gone before or even feel guilty about what we ourselves have or haven't done. But if you're going to see God do his great work of restoration it's because you have found the faith to dream again and we have found the faith to pick up our bag of seed and begin to sow a new life and a new hope into the community around us amen from behind your mask amen, amen. amen. <laughs> we have to guard our hearts and that's what we did last week not to get angry and bitter because the work of building and restoring is costly and hard. And God is really looking to, for us, as it were, looking for us. To move into the new season. So how do we sow for this glorious harvest that sees us bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the harvest with joy? The first thing is we sow the Word of God into our lives and into the content and shape of the community around us by reading, listening, actively retaining, persevering with it, sticking with it, humbly receiving and accepting. If I had to steal some of the descriptions from Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower and, uh, and the other Gospels and, and then James chapter 1 and verse 21. But Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 12 gives us an interesting Old Testament perspective. And it reads as follows. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Now Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, everything else, all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6, 33. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. That's very interesting. When you sow righteousness, you reap love. 
We have a world that wants love but refuses to sow righteousness. It's never going to find itself satisfied. Sow righteousness, reap love. Break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. So, we sow when we seek the Lord in his word and through sustained worship and prayer. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Seek the Lord. It's really time. And for us to be in prayer and for us to be in worship and for us to be investing ourselves in seeking the Lord and consciously recognizing our need of him. And in that process, as we've seen, you will be confronted again and again to humbly and honestly say sorry and forgive and reconcile. And if that's the righteousness we want to see, then we've got to get good at doing those things again and again. They are the very tools of the gospel. But there are other things that Scripture teaches as well. Galatians 6 verse 8. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap the life of the eternal ages. Or eternal life. We sow into the kingdom when we give ourselves to pleasing the Spirit. It's interesting you know, the, Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. And you have this word, uh, Jesus says, God is spirit, John chapter 4. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so what we find is that as we engage the word of God, we are also called to deliberately want and sow into pleasing the spirit of God. It's the exact opposite of what Paul says in Ephesians where he says, do not grieve the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What a joy it is to please the Spirit of Jesus. How do I live in such a way that I'm attentive and responsive and obedient to Him? And then just before you think I'm getting all airy-fairy, the very next verse says this, so let us not become weary in doing good. How do you sow to please the Spirit? Well, of course, there's that attitude of heart, but then there is this doing good. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, the interesting thing here in the, in the context of Galatians chapter 6 is that people are told, don't sow to the flesh, you're going to sow to the Spirit. And, and when you come to faith, you're going to be tempted to give up. Or when you begin again, you're going to be tempted to give up. Why? Because your harvest field is full of weeds. And, and just because you've decided it's time to begin again, doesn't mean that was sown and what grew in that field of yours over the last however long suddenly just disappears. You've sown to the flesh for how long? It's going to keep pushing up. You say sorry to God. You don't get a new field. You get a new bag of seed. You've been sowing the wrong stuff in your life. That's what the metaphor is. It's still going to push through. What you, when you had a fight with your neighbor two years ago before you decided to begin again, that's still going to push through. Your bad financial mismanagement, it's still going to push through. The stuff that you've done is going to keep going because you sowed it. 
But when you turn to God, He gives you a bag of new seed. So let us not become weary in doing good. In other words, sowing the new seed that you've got for at the proper time. In other words, it's going to take a while. Don't give up. Keep sowing with the new seed that you've been given. Eventually you will see that the field that was once weeds and nearly broke your heart will deliver for you the kind of harvest you want to see. But you've got to stay with it. And if we are looking for instant solutions, we are going to be long-term discouraged. (laughs) But if we understand the strategy of God of sowing this new thing that pleases the Spirit by doing good, over time we see the whole field begin to produce consistently with the seed that we have sown. Does that make sense? That really encourages me. Because it says, now I understand why it sometimes takes long. Yes, I've said sorry. Yes, I've asked God, can we begin again? Yes, I've dreamt again and I'm ready to go. But now it takes a while. You know, for some of us, we've been in relationships where we've realized, oh, this is difficult, hard, we've messed up, and you've come to God and to one another, and you've said sorry, and you've fixed the thing. But the seed that you sowed is still in that soil. It's going to take you a while. So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. You have the opportunity with your new bag of seed, and you're going to go, plot after plot and piece after piece and dig out those old weeds and put the new seed in and dig out those weeds and put the seed in and dig out those weeds and put the seed in and eventually if you persist and do not become weary in doing good you will reap at the proper time that's our reward and of course we sow when we proclaim Jesus and invite others to faith I think we need some serious creative thinking in the next couple of weeks. Isn't this just great, you know? We could do this, and then there could be a bri fire, and there could be, you know, how about dreaming about how we make this something that other people would come to? I mean, a lot of people haven't got our excuse. (laughs) We've got a grand, legitimate excuse to get together, up to 500 of us, Um, and spend time. It's interesting, talking of the harvest is reaching others. Jesus went through Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35, all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, what? The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is abundant. There's just so much. You know, he looks and everybody else was seeing problem people. He was seeing opportunity. (laughs) He was looking at the exact same situation. It's not that he didn't care. He had huge compassion. Says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And then he sends out his own workers and tells them this the kingdom, as you go, proclaim this message the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. So heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. 
Freely you have received, now freely give. You know, during this COVID time, I think we've learned like never before not to just think of ourselves. We've been forced to become aware of others. Now let's do that, not just at a material level, but at a spiritual level. Let's carry the awareness of what people need, what their hunger is, and how much we have that we can give away. And who we have, Jesus, that we give away. So will I share my faith? Will I go in his name? Will I invite people into my home and to my parties and open up doors that allow others to come to him? We have such an opportunity to dream again.